Well, it's good to see you uh, tonight. Thanks for coming and being a part of uh, this time uh, together. Uh, that, that worship is the kind of worship every preacher wants before he gets up to preach, and uh, that was a great time together. And Edu, just before you slip out, let me just say thank you so much for giving me a whole 20 minutes to preach tonight. I just want to <laughs> thank, 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 thank the worship team for, uh, for squeezing me in. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. 20 minutes. Do they know me? I mean, seriously now. It's good to see all of you, and, and this is a great time. We've had a wonderful time over these uh, two evenings, and this is our fourth of four services, as you know, and um, just really special to spend this time with you. Uh, there was a time uh, in history when uh, chivalry, things like chivalry and honor were held in high esteem. And maybe you know this phrase, but um, you know, when a man's word was his bond, you've heard that phrase before, when a man's word was his bond, and uh, not so much anymore. Uh, things like pledges and commitments and vows and covenants and promises are for many people today uh, throwaways. Uh, they don't hold the sway that they used to in previous generations. And much of that has to do with the cultural moment that we are currently in. And so now it seems that uh, we are in our culture uh, hardwired to believe that promises will not be kept. That's kind of the default setting now for us. But having that predisposition leaves us in an awkward place. It leaves us in an awkward place with each other as we seek to relate to one another. We make promises, and if they're not kept, it just reinforces all of this. But more importantly, it leaves us in an awkward place with respect to God. Promises uh, still matter to him, and he made a pretty big promise in the very earliest days of human history. And over the past couple of Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas weekend and these services, uh, we've been examining that promise uh, to send a Savior, to send his very own Son, to resolve the issue of our separation and alienation from God as a result of sin, and to reverse the curse of death that hangs over humanity as a result of our decision to sin. And that promise, as we've examined it, has come in the form of three babies that uh, were born through history. Uh, one, the first one, the son of promise. Uh, the second, a hope-filled reminder in very troubled times. And the third, the fulfillment of that promise, our eternal hope, and the one that we have been singing about and singing to here uh, this evening, Jesus Christ. And the question that I hope you'll wrestle with is this. We think about the songs that we've sung and the lyrics of those songs. We think about the readings that we've heard from Linus and from Edu. Okay, it was funnier when I thought it up. Um, and, and we think about the prayers and and. And what, what all of us believe here in terms of Jesus Christ, those of us that are participating. And the question with all of that in mind that I hope you'll wrestle with is this. Will I overcome my built-in bias against promises and trust God to keep his promise? That's really what we're going after. Now, I want to read to you from Matthew's gospel. And uh, we've heard from Luke's gospel. We've heard from John's gospel. And here is a section from Matthew's gospel that I think will be familiar to most of us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, will you, this is the question, will you believe God for the ultimate fulfillment of his promise. Now, the necessary starting point for talking about this is to recognize what's wrong. In order for us to believe the promise of God about a Savior, we have to understand that we actually need a Savior, that we're in a a difficult position. We need to recognize what's wrong. The immediate crisis in the passage we read here uh, was a crisis for Joseph, largely, uh, but also Mary. Verse 18, Mary had been betrothed, that is um, engaged to, but betrothal is like more than engagement, but less than marriage. It's a legally binding arrangement. They would have used the titles of husband and wife, but as we see in, in the reading, that we they had not yet come together uh, in the sense of being husband and wife, had not yet consummated the marriage. We're not yet living together, unless I go any further and make it awkward for the parents in the room. Um, I'll just leave it at that. They were not yet fully married in the fully married sense of that. So Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they got married, she was found to be pregnant uh, from the Holy Spirit. Now, when we read that last part, if we're a believer, like we're into church, we're into the Bible and all of that, and we hear that she, you know, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, that's just natural to us. I mean, we understand that God's a miraculous God. He's a powerful God. He can do that kind of thing. If you're here as a guest tonight and church is not your thing and the Bible is not your thing, you hear that and you go, that's the reason why I only come to church once a year is because I don't believe that. And I only come when someone invites me because I, I find that too much. And we don't have any trouble believing that a miracle working God and an all-powerful God can do that kind of thing. But that can be the crisis point maybe for some of you is to even believe that. But that isn't the big issue here. Not, certainly not for the main character of our story here right now is Joseph. And for Joseph, he's just ground level, engaged to be married, betrothed to a woman to be married. And, and she, he's just found out she's pregnant. Now, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's situation, where he's at right now, and what he knows to be true. He thinks that his betrothed, his beloved, he believes that she has cheated on him, that she's been with another man and she's become pregnant by this other man. That's the situation. That's the dilemma that Joseph finds himself. And that's grounds enough for him at this point to say, you know what, I don't don't think we should get married. I mean... You cheated on me before we even got to that point in our story, and you've cheated on me. And so he's thinking about that. And legally, in the Old Testament legal code, the Hebrew legal code, he was fine. Adultery had been committed. He could legally divorce her, not go through with the betrothal and the marriage. He was with his rights to do so. But notice verse 19. This is what makes it hard, because Joseph, being a just man, I mean, he's a good guy. Joseph, a good guy. He's a, the girls would just say, oh, you found a good one. You know, Joseph was a good, you found a good one there. Just hang on to that Joseph, he's a good one. And he was, that's what the text says. He's being a just man 
and unwilling to put her to shame. Why? Well, we could, we could just speculate. He loved her. He loved her. And he's brokenhearted at this point that she's been with another man. So being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to shame her, so he's just going to do it quietly on this. He doesn't want to hurt her in any way. Now, the only point we need to see in this, and there's so much we could say about what we've already just read and looked at, but the only point we need to see in this is that the world is a broken place, and Joseph knew that full well in this moment, just how broken the world is. He knew at this moment just how hard life can be, how difficult our lives can be. And perhaps your goal, as you think about that, perhaps your goal over the next hours, getting into Christmas, the next few days, getting through New Year's, perhaps your goal is simply to get through the holidays without any drama, without any difficulties, without, without a reminder about the difficulties that you've been through perhaps even in the past 12 months. But the reality is, this is the reality, the holidays amplify the drama. Whatever hardship, whatever difficulties you've gone through in the last years, it amplifies that when you get to the holidays. Even just getting together with family that you haven't seen for a while and getting together for the holidays can amplify the drama. And I know you want to kind of chuckle at that, but the drama makers are with you here tonight. (laughs) And you're going to have to spend some time with them in the next few hours, so I get why you're not responding to that. I mean, we don't need convincing on this point. You know there's something wrong with the world as a whole, and you know that because you feel it personally. And I'm not trying to ruin Christmas for you, not in any respect, but you know we all feel the dissonance of this world, the dissonance that we all feel and we all experience. And so you and I, as we think about that, we need to see that not simply in terms of the challenges that we go through as individuals, but now we need to see this as a much bigger problem. We need to see it in terms of the human condition as a whole. In fact, Matthew sets this up for us because we read from verse 18 through 25 to the end of chapter one, but the first part of chapter one, the first 17 verses, which I didn't read for you, and you might be grateful for that, is a genealogy. The New Testament starts with a genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. That's what it says in verse one. The genealogy of Jesus from, verse two, Abraham, 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, to verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, some highlights from this list demonstrate this human condition that we all live under. And these are, as I, as I highlight some of these names, it's going to be like watching a TLC reality show, okay? Because they're such messed up lives, and they're in the lineage of Jesus Christ the Savior. That's the thing that's shocking about this. These, are, these ancestors of Jesus are deeply flawed citizens of a deeply flawed world. So let's start. Let's, let's, let's listen to some of these. Uh, verse 2 talks about Jacob. Jacob is considered one of the patriarchs of Israel. In fact, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. He became like the father of the nation of Israel. He had 12 sons. And those 12 sons gave their names to the 12 tribes of Israel. So just from what I've told you, a very important character in Israeli history. 
And yet Jacob is known throughout the scriptures in almost every narrative about him. You go all the way through the book of Genesis and everything about Jacob. And he had all these face-to-face encounters with God and times when God spoke to him and God was clearly leading and clearly setting up things for him. And yet Jacob throughout his life is lying, he's cheating, he's manipulating people in situations. He can't help himself every single time. That's what he's doing. And here's this patriarch of Israel. He's a liar and a manipulator, and he's in the line of Jesus. The Messiah is going to come from his line. One of his sons was named Judah, verse 3. One of these 12 sons, listen to this now, and just need you to follow this with me for just a second. But one of his sons ends up sleeping with his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar. So Tamar is not a Jew. His sons had married outside of um, uh, outside of Israel, married this woman, Tamar. The son dies. She doesn't have any children. And so she dresses up, just this is how twisted this is. She dresses up like a prostitute. Judah's out there looking for a prostitute, surprisingly. Again, he's the son of a patriarch of Israel. He's in the line of Jesus. He's out looking for a prostitute. And he comes across his daughter-in-law, which she had set up. And he ends up sleeping with her and having two sons by her. That's demented. That's terrible. Now, it, it, followed, it followed Hittite law, but it didn't follow Jewish law in the line of Jesus. How about Rahab? She's a, she's a non-Jew. She's a prostitute. Isn't this like the best Christmas message you've ever heard so far? It's like, Merry Christmas. She's a prostitute in Jericho, the children of Israel coming into the land. They send spies. She helps the spies. She ends up connecting with Israel and staying with them and being saved even though Jericho was destroyed. So she becomes part of the nation. She becomes mother to a guy named Boaz who marries a woman named Ruth who's from Moab. And they're not exactly friendly with Israel, but Ruth becomes part of all of this. They, in fact, Ruth, in fact, becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And we go, well, finally we got to somebody who's like, uh, it's King David. He's awesome, right? He took over from Saul. Saul was a disaster. You think about David and all his exploits, and he wrote so much of the Old Testament. Like, the Psalms are so beautiful. But look at the notation as, as Matthew's recording the genealogy. Here's what he says about David. David, who was the father of Solomon. Solomon was smart. The father of Solomon, but here's what Matthew puts in here. By the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to Uriah. David slept with Bathsheba while Uriah was off at war fighting David's battles. He wanted to get Uriah back to sleep with his wife so he could cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. He wouldn't sleep with her. He was too loyal. So David had him murdered. So here's David. David! David, such a good guy, committed adultery, committed murder, covered it all up, only it was all exposed. Here he is in the line of the Messiah. Verse 9 is Ahaz, who we learned about last week, heard about him last week, a king of Judah. He took political matters into his own hands rather than trusting God. The prophet was sent to him, don't call on Assyria for help. But he did. And he ignored the Lord and didn't trust the Lord. Or Manasseh in verse 10, who is regarded, widely regarded as the worst, most immoral of all of Judah's kings and is responsible ultimately for the fall of Judah to Babylon and for the Jews going off into exile. 
And all of this to say, whether it is the line of kings, the, the line that leads up to the Messiah, or a list in our time, a list of successive governments in our democracies today, the story is always the same. It is corruption, it is failure, it is unethical behavior, it is immorality, it is infidelity, it is death and destruction, and it is power and greed. Every single government, because it is the human condition. And we get it in our minds, you know what? We just need to get to the next election. We need to elect another government, and it ends up being the same. The left doesn't have the answers. We convince ourselves we'll have the answers. We have the solution. The left does not have the answers. The right does not have the answers. And I'm picking on government here, but God established three institutions for humanity. He established government, he established the family, and he established the church or the, the, the faith community. And I'm telling you right now, I could say the same things about the family. The family is corrupted. It's filled with sin. There's so much heartache in families. And we could say the same thing about the church. We know about the controversies and we know what's happened in churches and in institutions. It happens everywhere in every institution. And why? Because Paul says to us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we fall short of the glory of God in our own lives. We fall short of the glory of God in our families. We fall short of the glory of God in all of our institutions, our government and the church. It's the way it is. It's the human condition. Creation itself has been marred by sin, and we have absolutely no way to fix it. And that's why we need to understand the divine remedy, because there is no human remedy for what's ailing the world today. There's no human remedy, so we need a divine remedy. Only God can fix the world. Only God can save you. Only God can save me. And that's the essence of the promise that he made all the way back in the book of Genesis. You go all the way back to the beginning, the original fall of man. Genesis 3.15, we have this promise that someone in Eve's line would be born a savior and would crush the serpent's head, the serpent who was Satan in that moment of temptation. That someone in Eve's descendants would crush the serpent's head, a fatal blow. That a savior would come through her line through her son, Seth, her third son, her baby, who would reverse the effects of sin and death, which you and I experience, which we know every single day of our lives. And so back to our, back to our story with Joseph. He's wrestling with his own personal crisis in this moment. And in verse 20, an angel appeared to him in a dream. So he goes to sleep that night thinking... I'm not getting married. Mary has betrayed me. She's having a baby. It's not mine. She's been with someone else. And he goes to bed that night. And an angel appeared to him in a dream and told him to take Mary as his wife, explain the whole plan to him, that she deliver, verse 21, a son, and that his name was going to be Jesus. And Jesus is the Greek form of the name. We would say Joshua would be the anglicized Hebrew name, but Yeshua would be his Hebrew name. And that name means God saves. God saves. And that's what you see next in the verse. He's going to save his people from their sins, which is verse 22, the fulfillment, and this is what we're getting at. This is the baby who fulfills it. The fulfillment of what the Lord had prophesied 600 years prior by the mouth of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah seven fourteen, which we looked at last week, that behold, 
Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a lift right out of Isaiah. And that was fulfilled at the time with Isaiah's baby, the second of the three babies, Meir Shalal Hashbaz. So three babies, Seth, Meir Shalal Hashbaz, and Jesus. Three babies, one glorious, amazing promise that we're the recipients of. And so the divine remedy for our human condition, what's wrong in the world, what's wrong in every one of our lives, the remedy for that is God made flesh. God coming here to be with us identifying with us in our struggle and providing the only way out of it. The only way out of it is God with us. But the remedy is not automatic. It's not as if Jesus gave his life, did all of this for us, and that automatically gets applied to all of humanity so that all of humanity is saved. It's not the way it works. We have to, it's not automatic, but we have to personally embrace the redemptive plan just as Joseph embraced his part in it. Verse 24, Joseph wakes up and believed what the angel had said, and he did it. In his case, that meant he was going to marry his betrothed. He's going to marry Mary, but then he didn't consummate their marriage. Verse 25, okay, they didn't get together in the get-together sense of that. Uh, verse 25, uh, 25, until she had given birth to a son. So the honeymoon was less exciting, okay? Uh, and and um, he waited until after Jesus was born before they had other children, and he did indeed, notice, name him Jesus. This is Joseph's act of faith in God. This, this is him believing in God's plan to save humanity, and, and for those of us who have, like, we have a fuller picture of that gospel than, than Joseph did. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the New Testament, which tells us of the life of Christ and gives us his teaching. And we have the history in the book of Acts. And we have the letters, the epistles of Paul and the others. And, and we understand more and all we need to understand about the gospel. Joseph had much less than that. And so we hear this message and we believe the promise by confessing our need of a savior. You need saving because you are a sinner. I need saving because I'm a sinner. And by recognizing that Jesus Christ is that savior who was not only born in human flesh, but who lived a perfect human life, tempted in every way like us, facing life the same way we do, with all of the pain and all the heartache and all the emotion of it, all the drama, but never having sinned, never having caved to that temptation. And because he was the perfect human being, the one and only, he was able to substitute his life for ours and gave his life sacrificially on the cross in our place and rose from the dead to utterly defeat Satan, to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, he crushed the serpent's head. The baby born to Joseph and Mary is the fulfillment of God's promise. And will you believe it is the question. Will you take everything that you've heard here tonight in the songs, knowing that every one of these Folks on stage passionately believes what they're singing about. 
that this is the gospel? Will you take what you've heard in the reading of God's word? Will you take what you've heard in, in this message? Well, what we've done here is we've sought to set you up to believe the promise of God. Will you believe it? And in a moment, we're going to sing a Christmas song that more than any other captures the sense of difficulty and trial that we face in life. Of all the Christmas songs, it is the most mournful, the most raw, and the most real. Unlike most Christmas songs or many Christmas songs you'll hear, it's not sugar-coated, it's not sappy, it's not sentimental. The song speaks to our deepest longings, our deepest need, and it's hopeful. It points to the appearing of the Son of God who opens wide the way to him, the God who keeps his promise. O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. God, as we um, take a moment to think about what we've heard and what we've experienced here tonight, I pray that you would meet each one of us right where we are. It is, it's awesome to think about you being a God outside of time and not, us not having to stand in line to meet with you. That you can meet with every one of us right where we are right now, that you know us, you know our hurts and our heartaches, and, and that's the starting point. And so for the many who have come to this season beaten down and discouraged, tired, running short on hope, I pray that you would lift them up and remind them of your love, remind them of your promise to make all things right. And I pray for those who are inquiring, who are considering these things, who are seeking and searching after you, learning, wanting to know more about this gospel and about who you are. I pray that you would teach them. I pray that your spirit would convince them of the truths they've heard here tonight and that you would bring them to faith in Jesus. And Father, I, I pray for the rebels amongst us who can't help but fight God for supremacy and control. I pray that you would melt their heart of stone. I pray that you would break through their resistance. I pray that you would squash their pride and bring them in tears to full surrender to Jesus Christ. God, help us all to believe. Help us to trust your promise. Help us, Father, to overcome everything that this broken world throws at us. We pray, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel.